Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hi, Peter. Look, uh, great uh, interest from investors at our uh, Switzer Investor Day on Friday last Sydney. One of the big topics for conversation was about uh, things like inverted yield curves, negative (laughs) yield curves and what's going on in gold. And uh, we're going to be talking to uh, up front to, uh, I should say, a guru in this area, but someone uh, who's... uh, been big on things like market timing and uh, has done a lot of research for us, and that's uh, Percy Allen. Um, and I think that's uh, see what he's got to say about inverted yield curves and gold and uh, when you what, should get out of the stock market. Yeah. That's that's why Percy's a very popular figure nowadays. You know, a former head of Treasury for the New South Wales government, been there at the coalface doing it on behalf of governments, and also I think worked for Westpac Bank of New South Wales in the old days. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see. He has liked gold, but he's also liked the Aussie stock market. We'll mm. just see if there's any change there, a particular of all the scary stuff we've seen, as you pointed out, about the bond market and inverted yield curves. Stock market you know, has been a bit nervous lately. We're also going to talk to John Allen, who's the CEO of Census Business Australia. Small business is really a bit spooked about the economy going forward, and I think in many ways I'm surprised. I, 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 and I think in many ways the... I think the Prime Minister and the Treasurer has to get on the front foot and do a Donald Trump talking about Australia being great again. Yeah, we need to uh, make, make Australia great. But look, I think, uh, and, and John will be covering what the data says, Peter, but I mm. do think we do underestimate the impact of elections. Yes, And yes. we say it at the time, but they are a huge drag on what people are doing, particularly when we had such a scary potential opposition or potential Prime Minister in Billy Shorten and, oh, yeah. and some of his very... He was like the Freddy Krueger of politics, <laughs> Freddy, uh, Billy, wasn't he? Very unfriendly policies for uh, business and, uh, investors. And, and investors generally. Mm. And I think, um, you know, that dragged on for a long time. It wasn't just the May election. We started talking, you know, the election last year and I think it's it, it just enough to, I mean, put people off. So yep. these things take a long time to wash through the system. Interesting to see what um, John Allen has to say about the impact of that. Yeah, exactly. And then we talked to a lady by the name of Rachel Staggs, who's a market specialist and business coach for SRS Coaching Consulting, and she's big on referrals. That's why I got her on the show, because a lot of people in business have great customers, but we're all scared to ask our customers if they'd like to tell their friends and family about how great the business is. And so I thought, let's find out how easy it should be to overcome a very important way of getting you know marketing for a business. Well, it is because if you're running a small business, uh, doesn't matter what it is. I mean, getting customers is really the biggest challenge, right? It's expensive too. And getting good customers and uh, and it's an expensive business. So I think how you can actually leverage your existing customers if it's right for them, yeah. uh, and if they're happy with what you're doing. And I think uh, it's a hard thing. But if you don't ask, you don't get, Peter. I think that's the other that's the, that's uh, the, little adage that's out the there. That's the bottom line. Yep. Okay, that's the show ca- uh, coming up. And without any further ado, let's go to Percy Allen, as I say, former head of Treasury for New South Wales government, but also now 
um, the guru behind market timing. And that's the kind of thing we want to know. Should we be getting out of this market or staying in? Thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. You're welcome, Peter. Um, so, personally, I think I'd like to start this way. Why did you get into market timing? And I guess you should define what market timing really is. Um, yeah. Market timing, uh, as the word I suppose suggests, is trying to time when it's good to be in the market and when it's bad to be in the market. And, uh, of course, you try to be in the market um, when it's good and you try to hmm. step out of it when it's bad. Uh, as for my involvement, uh, like a lot of other people, I got burnt in the global financial crisis. And I thought there really had to be a better way of managing share market risk. And so I got very interested in trend following, um, where you look at um, simple moving averages of the stock exchange index to see broadly is the market going up or going down. And you also add some um, momentum indicators to it to show the speed with which it's going up or going down. And so a group of us started a company called Market Timing at the time, and it's changed ownership uh, several times, and it's it's now in your ownership. Um, but it's lasted now for um, 10 years, and it's performed reasonably well, and um, it has done its job, which is stay out of um, uh, market crashes. Now, mind you, there's only been really close to one market crash in Australia in the last 10 years. But when we back test it, it, it works quite well in terms of keeping one out of a crash, yet keeping one in the market when it's rallying. Now, Percy, one of the strategies you run has been uh, uh, been long gold. In fact, you uh, have been long gold now, one of your timing signals for some months. And that's actually matched a pretty strong movement in, in the gold price. Maybe you could just explain, I think the question I get a lot from people is, why do people buy gold and why has the price of gold gone up so much over the last few months? Yeah. Um, our rotation strategies both went to um, gold. I think it was on the 12th of May. They recommended switching to gold compared with other uh, industry sectors uh, within Australia or overseas. Um, and it was simply based on momentum. Those two strategies work on a nine-month momentum model and... Um, each of them has five asset classes in the strategy, about the local one and the overseas one. And um, it just happened that gold started overtaking the other asset classes at that time, a little bit like a race between um, different horses, where you always back the horse that's winning. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the 12th of May, uh, for both those strategies, gold overtook the other asset classes and um, while I found it hard to believe because the stock market was doing quite well at the time, um, what the market was really telling us was that um, concerns were rising and money was now flowing into gold as a, a safety asset. And maybe you could just explain why, just, just try to put a bit of context as to why you think those concerns are out there. Um, I think, yeah, look, there's a number of short-term reasons. I suppose the two biggest ones would be um, America's trade and technology war with China. And the other one would be the impending uh, departure of Britain from Europe, uh, what we call Brexit. But there's lots of others. Um, so there are some worrying uh, uh, currents going on. 
But I think a more underlying worry, and that's when one talks to uh, officials in government and reserve banks and that, is that we have a structural problem around the world in that the global financial crisis was supposedly caused by excess debt. And after the global financial crisis, we expected some fairly major deleveraging as happened after the great crash of 1929. But it didn't happen because central banks stepped in and threw a lot of liquidity at banks to encourage them to lend even more. And so the world started borrowing more again, particularly governments and corporates. Uh, whereas before the global financial crisis, households had been borrowing heavily um, and uh, financial institutions. So there was a bit of a switch there, but the total debt of the world kept growing. Um, and uh, and so the world now has about $250 trillion worth of debt. Um, and I think the concern amongst a lot of officials is, look, how do we get more growth in the world if we've already got excess debt? Because those who've got a lot of debt, even though interest rates are at 500-year lows, uh, are concerned that if interest rates normalise, they might have difficulty servicing that debt. And that's what I think is holding back spending in governments. I think it's holding it back uh, now in corporates, but it's also holding it back in households. And so that's a sort of underlying structural problem for which no one has an easy solution. Um, and um, I read an interesting piece yesterday saying that part of the problems uh, in, in Europe and America that are resulting in the election of very populist governments like Trump or, or now the swing to Johnson in Britain and uh, there's been the rise of right-wing parties in Europe is that a lot of people are just indebted and they don't know a way out of this and they're, they're looking for some sort of solution. Um, and so um, since wages in America have been pretty stagnant in real terms for 50 years, a lot of people have run up debt instead. So a lot of students have run up student loans. And a lot of those students are turning to the left in politics. They're protesting over it. And others who are older are turning to the right. But the underlying problem for a lot of them is their prosperity is not going up and they're just borrowing more to improve their living standard. Yeah, now, Percy, you know, given where you were, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, in the position of, you know, Treasury for the New South Wales government, you also would have had to encounter the, the changes in economic theory, um, you know, up until, I guess, the, the 80s, um, it was okay to be a Keynesian for governments to, to, to spend money to get economies mm -hmm. go, going. And when stagflation came along in the, the 70s, 80s started sort of putting forward other views on how you get rid of these sorts of problems. Um, and one of the things that was embraced was more and more free trade. Now, Donald yep. Trump has come along and basically you know, trumped free trade in a sense. If we had more free trade, do you think we would get more growth and that would help solve the problem? And, and in a sense, what Trump's doing is not good for getting world growth and therefore helping to get on top of this trillion-dollar debt trouble, uh, trouble that you referred to earlier in the interview. Look, I'd agree with you, Peter. I, I uh, ran Treasury, I mean, it's quite a while back now, from... Uh, State Treasury from 1985 to 94, so it was nearly a decade. Mm. I worked for four premiers, um, uh, Rann and Unsworth and then Greiner and Fay. And uh, 
I uh, saw the Liberal transformation when the Greiner government got elected. They were very much into um, the new economics of free trade and also of cutting back on debt um, and uh, going for growth. And uh, to a large extent, it did work. Um, I'm just writing a piece at present on the transformation of government trading enterprises in New South Wales where there was a massive improvement in productivity, their profits went up, their employment halved, their prices fell, their debt fell, um, and they were able to release a lot of resources into the general government sector, that's hospitals and schools and so forth. And so that sector was able to grow during the recession of 91-92, even though you know things were tight, uh, because a lot of spare resources got moved from the commercial side to the social side. Now, I'd agree with you. I think the world will grow better if we have globalization, if we have technological change and innovation, um, and also if um, the population grew faster. But the reality is that um, a lot of that improvement went to narrowing the inequality between poor countries and rich countries. And uh, a number of rich countries um, saw this narrowing as being a a a destruction of their manufacturing sector. And the blue-collar workers in those countries, like in America, are supporting Trump, and in Europe, they're supporting right-wing parties. and Britain, they went for Brexit because they said, look, this, all this innovation and all these uh, changes, even though it lifted living standards, um, resulted in a massive restructuring of rich countries' economies. And so a group of people in those countries, they felt suffered. And, um, and the fact that we, tell, we can tell them that millions were lifted out of poverty in Asia isn't um, mm. calming. So... Um, so there has been a backlash, and uh, but really the world has improved over that period, but much of the improvement happened in uh, reducing inequality between nations rather than um, speeding the living standards in rich countries. Yep. So moving back onto the local scene, Peter, uh, sorry, Percy, um, your, uh, your indicators are also um, still bu- bullish along the Australian share market. Uh, yes. So uh, any sort of... Uh, sort of uh, feelings about how, what the indicators say. I mean, this uh, given your comments earlier about debt. Yeah, well, of course, we're just trend followers. Um, I spent much of my early life as a macroeconomic forecaster, uh, both at the Bank of New South Wales or Westpac, as, as it was then, and then at the New South Wales Treasury. Um, and as I've grown, <laughs> my scepticism for forecasting has grown. Mm. And so with market timing, we just look at the trends and momentum. And that's true, uh, Paul. At present, um, the, the share market on our longer term indicator, that's our conservative strategy, is still strong. On our active strategy, it has actually moved to a sell signal, though we, though we don't issue those signals any longer. We used to initially, but we, we dropped them because there's too much whipsawing if you mm-hmm. try to market time the market over the short term. So at present, our traffic lights on amber. Uh, on the active strategy, it's gone to a sell signal, but on the conservative strategy, it's still safely in the buy zone. Um, uh, now, as an economist, uh, I am, I suppose, somewhat concerned about the uh, negative yield curve um, because it has a very good forecasting record. I had a look this morning at the forecasting record of the IMF in terms of picking <laughs> recessions in 
every country in the world over a long period. Someone's just done a big study. Um, less than 1% uh, of its forecasts were right, and they largely concerned, I think, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, and Equatorial Guinea, and every other country they got wrong. Um, That's nasty, Professor. It's very nasty. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all economists, so I'm in the same camp. Um, and uh, but as for the private sector economists, they did a bit better. They did about a little bit over three percent accuracy. That's the sort of consensus private forecast. So, so that's economists still are not very good at picking right? turning points. <laughs> um, but the negative yield curve, you know, the inverted yield curve, um, it's um, been about ninety percent accurate in the last sixty years. Looking at the data this morning. Um, uh, the 10 times it inverted on nine occasions, uh, there was a recession later on. Now, the good news is this. There's quite a, it takes quite a time between when, an inver- when a yield curve inverts and when a recession happens. Um, and um, on, one, on the one occasion it didn't happen, governments actually jumped in and did some fiscal stimulus in 1966 yeah, yeah. and averted it. Uh, so there is time, you know, for action to be taken, and I suspect governments, if they started sen- sensing that, would act. Um, the other good news is that it takes, a, on average, about 18 months before the stock market turns. Mm. And in the meantime, it goes up, on average, about 16%. So those who jump out today could miss the next 16%. Yeah, exactly. Although, when I say the average, sometimes it can be minus 11 and sometimes it can be as much as 30%. Yeah, and this is why I want to come into you, Percy, that I bet you under none of those circumstances of those six occasions that you looked at the inverted yield curve were interest rates near zero or negative because they would have been more traditional, wouldn't they? Like you would have had rising interest rates and those rising interest rates would have actually sort of started the wheels turning against the stock market in that period of time. Yes. No, I I think that's true, Peter. Um, Also, as you say, interest rates were much higher then because inverted yield curves really come about, I think, because of one of two reasons. Either there's a credit squeeze pushing up Mm short-term interest rates, and there's definitely Mm -hmm. no credit squeeze Mm -hmm. at present around the world. If anything, it's the opposite. We've got loose monetary policy and so forth. So it's moved in that direction, back in that direction. Um, The other reason is that um, investors... Um, looking out, get more pessimistic. And so they say, look, there's no point investing 10 years out um, because we don't think the returns are going to be any better than now. Now, some of this is very much driven by America. I think a lot of it is there. The American stock market is, I think, very heavily overvalued um, on on a range of measures we can talk about. Um, But the rest of the world is not that overvalued. Um, so I think in America, you, when one reads the analysts, they're saying, look, when one looks at history, given the overvaluation of the present American stock market for the next 10 years, things are going to be negative. Now, the same is not true for other countries, particularly emerging countries and also Australia. If one goes to Guru Focus or there's another German site where they look at PE ratios and they look at market cap capitalization to GDP, they're actually saying, look, places like Australia and Asia look pretty good um, because they're not overvalued and they've got reasonable returns. My worry is that if America was to crash, and I think it will at some point, the rest of the world will come down with it temporarily. Um, it'll be a great buying opportunity, particularly in Asia and Australia, if the market's already reasonably well valued. Um, so at market timing, uh, I am watching our conservative strategy. If it, if it does go to sell, I will sell 
a number of my um, – I don't go completely out of shares, but I will uh, lighten up. And we will tell everybody when Percy goes negative, that's for sure. <laughs> a poor <laughs> <your> question. <laughs> look, I just wanted to say, Percy, uh, look, I understand what you're saying about inverted yield curves or negative yield curves, but in case any yeah. of our, our listeners out there are worried about them, I think any idea that there are people in the bond market thinking about recessions just don't understand how bond markets work. <laughs> but it is the way to money. And, uh, mm. you know, we do live in interesting yeah. times, as you said, and that's obviously partly one of the reasons that yeah. uh, gold's been such a great asset in the last yeah. uh, few months. Yeah. Anyway, we're still on by uh, for our major signal for mm. the share market, uh, the conservative strategy. There's a lot of headroom between uh, where it is now and where there would be a crash. So... Um, uh, we're still on buy on, on that. Well, certainly, Percy, the day you turn negative, all our listeners on this podcast and all our viewers on the Switzer TV will be the first to hear about it. Mate, thanks for joining us on the program. You're welcome. And that was Percy Allen, who was the founder of Market Timing. Market Timing is now in the Switzer stable. If you want to know more about it and read what Percy has to say, go to markettimingaustralia.com.au. Now, Paul, I, I want to do an ad now for my new book, uh, which is called Join the Rich Club. A, a bit of self-promotion, Peter. Yeah, well, in the absence of, a, of an official ad, I, I think the, the bottom line is I wrote the book for the kind of people listening to the program. I want everybody to join a rich club. Is that a ignoble thing to do? No, I think you want to be rich as a function of other people joining the rich club. That's that's perfectly okay. <laughs> I want to know what my cut is. <laughs> well, your cut is that, oh, hey, I gave you a really big thank you in the, in, the, in the book. I think I actually said in your personal copy, I couldn't have done it without you. So that's rich in a non-financial way. <laughs> but that's great. I'd say I'm happy being rich non-financially. <laughs> Well, but, but, but Paul, you don't need any help. Yeah, you, you came here because you were a member of the Rich Club. I wouldn't have let you join our business if you came poor because we needed your money and your expertise. Okay, so enough self-promotion. Tell <laughs> us about the book. Yeah, so basically I've, I've thought what's the easiest way of giving the simple rules that will help you get rich? And they're not getting rich overnight it's in a sense it's a slow way to get rich but i think it's a very reliable one based on history i know they often say in all those financial ads you know past performance is no reliable guide to the future but paul you've been in this game a long time if you can't rely on past performance what can you rely on yep i, I always laugh when you hear that in the ad so, so look it's a very good indicator not always right but a good indicator as we always say yeah. so uh, Lydia, how do people get the book peter well if you go to switzerstore.com.au so it's switzerstore.com .com.au. It's priced at $24.95. And I interviewed Jeff Wilson from Wilson Asset Management the other day, and Jeff said his whole life he'd been trying to get a dollar for 80 cents. So he wants to get a dollar on the cheap. I say anyone who's prepared to pay $24.95 for this book is going to get probably potentially million dollars from a simple investment of 24 95. And that's switch the store or one word dot com dot au. Exactly. On Monday of this week, I wrote a story about. I was surprised to, to, to actually read that small business is really negative, really negative about the future of the economy going forward. And I just thought it was kind of 
unusual with all the tax cuts, with tax cuts, the interest rate cuts, the lower dollar, uh, the, the fact that the ScoMo government got up, which is probably more uh, pro-small business. I thought that that would have been sort of turning around. But in actual fact, they are negative. So we, we've caught up with the CEO of Census Business Australia, John Allen, to see why the survey um, tells us that small business is so negative. Thanks for joining us on the program. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Good to be with you. Okay. Now, I wrote a story this morning on switzer.com.au as a consequence of, of seeing your report. It kind of surprised me that small business still looks feels very negative about the economy going forward. Give us a summary of what your take is on that subject. Look, they're certainly concerned about sort of the economic indicators that um, they're seeing in the marketplace. So, I guess the first thing that tends to impact small businesses is consumer confidence. So I think in the last report we saw consumer confidence in Australia is starting to drop slightly. So we see things either like, you know, uh, um, property price deflation, consumer confidence. Those things play in pretty heavily to the, the census business index each quarter. Um, now, interestingly, though, their, their prospects of business are pretty good. So on the flip side, we saw their confident, um, you know, their business confidence is strong, but they are worried about this economic outlook. And, and a fairly pessimistic bunch, I think one in three, are really worried about the economy slowing down in the next 12 months. And, and John, do you, is, that, uh, is that normal? Could, you know, just put, give a bit of historical context about this one in three because I, I read lots of reports about small business, and it always seems that they're just a touch negative. But maybe, maybe I'm misinterpreting the data. No, look, they look. I would say generally, we've been surveying them for 25 years now. Eh? It, look, they are a cautious bunch of mm-hmm. people generally. I would say small businesses. You know, sometimes you can be asking them. You know, businesses doing exceptionally well, and they'll give you a fairly um, cautious, controlled answer about you know how well their business is doing. Um, it is a bit concerning, though, and I think it is, um, you know, it goes beyond just kind of the one in three. Um, 30% believe in 12 months the economy will be worse than it is now. Only 22% thought it would be better. Now, it's hard to look at the comparative data on this because we changed their methodology on this survey, but the, the numbers, um, the underlying numbers around kind of economic confidence um, are a little bit concerning, but are counter to what we're seeing in terms of business confidence. Because, you know, fundamentally, most of the states uh, and metro and regional areas are feeling pretty confident about themselves. Mm. John, it seemed to me that there was a lot of stuff that might have scared the pants off them in the first five or six months of the year. You know, we had the, the Royal Commission and the impact on banking, restrictive lending that came out of that. You had the the normal pre-election anxiety, plus Bill Shorten's policies were, were pretty scary to a whole lot of, um, you know, retirees, uh, business owners on, on wages. Uh, and also the stock market, you know, had a shocker in the last six months of, of last year as well. Adding it all up, I can see why. And then you throw in inverted yield curves and headlines and then stock markets recently falling. Throw it all together it seems like there's good reason to be negative. But on the flip side, we've seen two interest rate cuts, tax cuts, house prices are now starting to come back, you know, auction clearance rates are improving. Are they, is small business, in a sense, slow to react to the changes? And, and are they over-affected by headlines? Look, they are you know, heavily influenced what's going on in the media, is my view. 
Um, you're, you're right, Peter. All those things, I think, have played in pretty hard towards this sort of economic outlook. Um, interest rates low, tax breaks good, um, but at the same time, consumer confidence, property price deflation. And I think many small businesses, of course, use their um, own home as kind of leverage to support their business in more difficult times. So they're sort of property price deflation it does directly impact them in their back pocket as well. I think the other thing's interesting, I think the low Australian dollar, I know we talk about the positive side of that for export. Um, the negative of that is 36% of businesses surveyed in this survey said they had an increase in costs of goods that they had to buy. Now, we don't know underneath that whether that's the dollar dropping as an impact, but it, but it seemed like a you know, relatively high number when only... Um, 25% said, look, we're able to increase our profitability and 23% were able to increase prices. So there's definitely sort of a bit of a sort of cost pressure there. Could that be the Australian dollar sort of playing out for those that need to buy items and, and import them into Australia? I suspect it could be. Um, I think the other thing too is that, you know, when you get sort of consumers um, perhaps, you know, on low inflation and low wage increases, and then them themselves saying, well, look, you know, perhaps, perhaps as a consumer, we're going to pull ahead in a bit, pay down a little bit of debt in these uncertain times. You know, is there enough sort of cash washing through the economy to small business? So they and, worry about those things. And, John, is there much variation between the states or between the big cities and, and regional Australia? How do you sort of uh, see it from state to state, city to city, region to region? Yeah, look, we, we see, look, eastern seaboard states are the most positive. So we see, um, you know, Queensland, incredibly positive. Victoria, in fact, Tasmania, while small, um, is the most positive out of all the states and territories and has been for actually, a, you know, probably a good year or so now. Mm-hmm. So their economy is doing well. Um, we see states that are making good investment, infrastructure investment, um, quite often can have a good positive impact. So that's, you know, think about Tasmania uh, and... Um, you know, a lot of people kind of moving into Tasmania, so pretty positive um, uh, initiatives going on there from perhaps the government as well. So Eastern Seabrook, good. Um, you know, certainly South Australia and WA, um, less so. Still, though, in positive territory, I think we're still seeing WA come off, um, you know, off the back of a perhaps uh, poor economic trading conditions mm-hmm. uh, from, from a few years back. Now, Metro is definitely more positive than regional. The regional um, is that a function of the drought? Do you think, or just uh, in the there's no doubt the drought. Yeah, there's no doubt the droughts impacting particularly in New South Wales. I think that's a you know, it, you know if it doesn't rain soon, I think that's going to be you know even bigger concern mm-hmm. than it is now after businesses uh, businesses in New South Wales. So, um, but you know, Queensland regional is is, is pretty positive. Uh, we're seeing sort of positive results from there. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, as my kind of summary point, is they're in a pretty good spot. But I think as they've come off the back of the election and all these kind of, all these components are coming at them, it does make them start to feel perhaps a little bit more concerned about the economic outlook. Okay, John, one last area I'm concerned about is uh, access to finance. And I'm seeing a lot more lenders in the market for, for um, small business. But the rates of interest are really, really high. What, what, what was the, the, the view of small business about finance? Look, they're telling us it's harder to get access. So 30% of Metro and 37% regional said it was harder this quarter to get access to finance than six months ago. Um, 
now, 87% of people surveyed didn't try and get access to finance in the last quarter. But look, of the 13% that did, 73% were successful, 27% were actually unsuccessful. Um, now, that's interesting, I think, in itself. Um, you know, that, that's you know, close to 30% who want to get some access to finance. Mm. Um, there's no doubt when we look at the trend of the last couple of years, um, this is continuing to, to um, deteriorate. I agree with you. I think off the back of the banking inquiry, harder to get access to finance, particularly you know, perhaps when property prices have dropped as well as a small business owner. Um, I think this is really, really, really playing out. Now, we then went on to ask them about where, when you do get access to finance, where do you get it from? Um, 40% are still preferring the bank as first. Um, but we saw 25% using credit card. Um, so, you know, that's a fairly high number, I think, in terms of how they access finance. Um, many, of course, use it for cash flow and access to frequent flight points, plus to speak to fund their next holiday um, is, is pretty normal. Mm. But I, I do think this is a concern. Um, you know, hopefully as, as leaning kind of opens up a little bit from the banks and we get some sort of balance back into the process, um, you know, I, I'd like to see this um, sort of number coming back a, a little bit further for it is now. So okay. it looks like the responsible lending um, sort of issues that ASIC has had with the in, in the retail space of the home loan market are also sort of permeating to the business space and banks are having to be more responsible in inverted hmm. commas, and that's flowing through to the less availability of finance. Is that your, uh, that's your read on it, uh, John? It is. That is exactly our read. So that, you know, I think we must remember small businesses, and many of them, to raise capital or, or raise cash, um, go back to the bank that has their home loan. Yeah. Um, yep. and, and, you know, they take an extension on that or perhaps a, a you know, redraw facility or an overdraft facility. Um and, you know, I think for all of us, and small businesses included, getting access to that just became increasingly hard. Now, many of the non-bank lenders are saying, well, you know, things are probably a little bit better for those guys and there's lots of alternatives. Um, but I think, you know, as small businesses, it seems they still are gravitating back to their bank as their core, core lender at this point. Yeah. John, thanks for joining us on the program. No problem. Anytime. That's John Allen, CEO of Census Business Australia. Well, Paul, let's just do a little... Um, ad for market timing Australia yeah so it's um, it's put together by Percy Allen we heard from Percy earlier in the program mm -hmm. what market timing does is, is it produces every week a bulletin uh, that tracks three sort of major signals and Percy talked about them and uh, looks at uh, both the sort of the long and short case for Australian equities the best sort of sector which is sort of you know dealing with different asset classes and also a third signal and gives you the signal when to buy and sell. Now, it's not going to give you a signal every week, mm. um, but it is available and it's looking at long-term trends and it's available uh, as a subscription, markettimingaustralia.com.au, $199. You get a, a weekly bulletin from written, edited by Percy, plus a monthly bulletin, plus up-to-date whenever the signals change uh, and that's available by going to markettimingaustralia.com.au. And, and the thing I will say, Paul, is that when I invest, I always look for the, the fundamental reasons why I might like a company or an index or a market. And then I, I go to the charts to see what the charts are saying about that, that commodity or that a stock or that market. But then I, I, I'd love to add to my arsenal, which I have, 
Percy's market timing. So if the markets were charts were saying stock market looking dodgy, uh, and market timing tells me market's looking dodgy, that's when I'll start telling people that I'm getting a bit scared about the stock market. Yep, and I think that's uh, that's great advice, Peter. And I mentioned it in the in the interview um, about gold um, mm. as a good example of uh, Percy being well on top of that in terms of uh, some of the other commentary I've yeah. heard. So, but simultaneously, uh, he's still supporting the Aussie stock he's market, still, and, which and made and me feel yeah, comfortable. And I don't feel uncomfortable with that uh, yeah. either. So I think you. But market timing is looking at a number of factors, but essentially looking at a lot of long-term trends. Yeah. And I still think the trend. I agree with him. It's yeah. still Australian equities are still long-term in an uptrend. The trend is your friend until it bends. We said earlier in the show that referrals are really important in business and a lady who specialises in helping people get referrals is Rachel Staggs, marketing specialist and business coach from SRS Coaching and Consulting. So Rachel, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. Oh, thanks for having me. So why don't you just give us an idea of your background before we start picking your brains on how people can get referrals. Sure. So the work that I do and I've been doing for many, many years now is working with financial advisors with all things marketing. So anything to do with building their business through marketing, communications and business development is what I do. Okay, right. So one of the reasons why I'm talking to you, you you wrote a piece about how people can get comfortable asking for referrals. So with your work with financial advisors, are a lot of them very uncomfortable about asking for referrals? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I'd say 80% of them are uncomfortable asking for referrals, and that's, that's seasoned advisors through to newer advisors, yes. And Rachel, um, just on the referrals, I remember when uh, in my executive days, the organisation I was with employed a a group out of the US called uh, Cohen Brown that you're probably familiar with. And uh, Mm -hmm. they were very big on referrals. And so it's it's interesting when you say, you know, we need to as in in business get good at asking for referrals. What's the secret for someone to ask a referral? What, What do they need to do? What mindset do they need to have? Well, I think, first of all, I just want to preface it by I always say it's not your client's job to get you clients. Right. It, okay. is, your, it, is, it is your job to get, to get clients. However, that said, I know through um, surveying clients of financial advisors, one of the questions I will ask them is, have you ever introduced someone to XYZ advisor? And it's really interesting because a lot of the feedback is, no, I didn't even know they wanted any more clients. So it's really interesting when you ask that question because I think that even though, you know, I don't think it's our client's job to get us clients, I think when the time is right, you have the opportunity to ask. But you just, um, one of the things that is a challenge for a lot of advisors is the mindset. So you need to work on that first because if you haven't got confidence, you're not going to have the conviction to ask in the right way. So, you know, a lot of advisors will say to me, oh, we ask every client. Well, that's just awkward and awful and, and isn't something that we should do. So I think there is a, a nice way to invite clients to introduce people to their business. How does a financial advisor get comfortable asking for referrals? Um, well, they've got to be, I think they've got to be confident in the value that they can add to other people. And that's an easy statement to say, but for a lot, especially at the moment, 
they're questioning what the value is. So I think that a lot of them have just got to nail what is the value. So they've got to do that piece of work to say, what's the value that we offer new clients? So they know the value for existing clients, but it's the new clients that they're questioning um, in today's world. So I think that they've got to work that piece out first of all. Um, and then they've got to, when it's when they're with a client and they get great feedback, you know, the client that says, hey, Barry, I love the work you do or, you know, your team make it really easy. Whenever there is great feedback, that's the opportunity for an advisor to say, hey, look, Joe, I love working with you. I've really enjoyed being able to add value to you and your family or, or whatever it might be. I'm just wondering, is there anybody else in your family that you believe could benefit from our advice as well. And I think it's really important to narrow down what segment you're asking for because if you said to me or if you said to somebody, you know, who do you know, all of a sudden we can't remember anybody's name. But when you start to narrow it down to whether it's family, whether it's work, whether it's the tennis club, where is it that the person sitting opposite you might find ideal clients it gets a lot easier to have that conversation. So you have to uh, sort of pick your target in terms of who, which of your clients might give you referrals and obviously identify them very carefully. Do you need to equip your client with any particular information or skills or is it just a matter of simply saying, as you've described, you know, look, if you've got any friends or family that I could help, let me know. Is it just, just flesh that out for me if you can, Rachel. Oh, yeah, because that's the golden part. So what a lot of advisors do is they leave it there. And that's all that happens. Because the client goes, yeah, absolutely, you know, I'll have a mm-hmm. chat to so-and-so. They leave the office, their world continues, and hey, what do you know, they've forgotten about you. I haven't done it on purpose. Everyone's just business. Uh, everyone's just busy. It's, it's an epidemic. So the, the golden rule is talk to the client there and then. What is it that needs to happen to facilitate this introduction to your business? So you might say, if they say, yeah, look, actually, you know, I think my brother Tom could really benefit from your advice. You go, fantastic. How do you think the best way forward is with Tom? Do you want to ask Tom to give me a call? Shall I give Tom a call? Have you got mm-hmm. a brochure that you can hand to that person to say, hey, give that to your brother? Have you got something you can email to your brother? So I think there are lots of different ways to skin a cat here, awful term, but um, I think you understand what I'm saying, but you've got to agree with the client, what are the next best steps? What are we going to do? Because if you don't do that, it's back to that hope and bay craze strategy, just hoping like hell that they actually do say something to somebody. Yep. Um, so I think, again, having the confidence to say that's great, how do we move forward with that? That's business. That's professionalism. That's the right way to have the conversation. How would this work if someone said, "Yeah, look, I'm I'm really happy to um, to talk to my brother-in-law about um, about your services." How about if you came back and said, "Well, look, how about I, I just send you a, an email about the sort of stuff we do, and then you can pretty well just forward it on to your brother-in-law." How do you think that would work? Well, if that's the process that the client has said is going to work for the client, then that's what you do. And I think in that instance, it would be quite acceptable to maybe follow up in a couple of weeks, give that client a call and say, hey, how did your brother go? How did your brother-in-law go with that information? Was it of value? What else can I do? So again, it's that follow-up. Don't just let it go. Keep following up. Keep the notes in the system. They have to keep notes. 
keep the note in the system, diarise when you've got a follow-up and do the follow-up. Okay, Rachel, that's great. If people want to know more, do you have a website they can go to? Yeah, they can go to srscc.com.au. Um, there's always blogs, there's podcasts, there's lots of information that advisors can get. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thanks, guys. Well, that was Rachel Stagg, and she's the marketing specialist, a business coach from SRS Coaching and Consulting. Paul, we've covered some important things around the stock market in Percy's interview, and we you kind of infer you're comfortable despite the fact that there's bond market ructions and recession headlines. You're not super worried about the market right now? No, I'm looking for an opportunity to buy, Peter, and I have been that way now for some months. Uh, but look, the market's still an uptrend, and uh, despite, you know, despite bond market ructions and all the rest of the stuff, I mean, interest rates are so low um, that it's going to uh, provide a lot of underlying support to the equities markets going forward. And until uh, you can show me that interest rates are going to go up, I'm going to be really hard-pressed to get bearish about the stock market. Yeah. I just want Donald to give us a trade deal. Let's hope that maybe Donald might surprise. <laughs>